Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Now, here's your host, Brian Moran. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moran. Today, I'm going to welcome a world-renowned storyteller, an entertaining speaker, and a prolific author who just uh, came out with a new book called Rethink Innovation, and I love it. So with that, I want to welcome to the Small Business Edge podcast, Carla Johnson. Hello, Carla. Thank you, Brian. I think many of those adjectives could be used to describe you. Speaking of entertaining and prolific and... <laughs> Maybe renowned, but yeah. not for the right reasons. <laughs> All the fun reasons. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. No, this, I'm excited. So you, you have a new book that, is it officially out? It comes out June 29th. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, June 29th. You, you got the secret VIP early package. There you go. So for the people watching this on video, I'm holding it up. It's a beautiful book. I mean, aesthetically, I love the packaging. I love the forward. I love, I love everything about this. And I, and I want to get into this with you because I think you, what you have to share, it doesn't matter what size company you run or whether you're an entrepreneur or you're a team leader in a large organization, you know, your book, Rethink Innovation, I think is written for everybody in business today in any country. Yeah. And and that actually was a big part of my goal in writing this book is that I think innovation is one of those words that's used and overused that feels untouchable. Both the word and the people who we think of that are innovators, they're um, a special breed, a special background, a special degree, a special experience, a, a special something. Right. And it's only, you know, if you look at a traditional definition of innovation, it's it's a very small group of people who we rely heavily on to innovate. And the truth is, when you look at, if you look at how much everything changed in the last 15, 16 months, mm. if you could only rely on a traditional innovation group to keep up with change, we would have companies littered along the roadside like you wouldn't believe. I mean, there would be so little to buy because there would be so few companies left in business. But the truth is the companies that are doing the best understand that innovation is everybody's job because it's not just about the product and service that you sell. It's how you serve customers and it's how you grow your company and it's how you respond, particularly in times like this last year that we've had. So that's interesting. And I like that approach. And I personally agree with you. I think innovation can come from any number of sources within a company. So let's start by this. Let's let's define innovation. What exactly is it? You know, thanks for asking that, because I think that is one of the most confusing parts of the whole conversation is we talk about something that we don't have a common definition of. Right. And I in the book, I share a bunch of convoluted definitions that I came up with, you know, as I did research, yeah, uh, I found from other places. Right. And I don't think anybody could use that definition and understand it. And so how I defined it is innovation is the ability to consistently come up with new, great, and reliable ideas. Now, each of those words is important because the consistency of being able to come up with these ideas is one thing because we know with any great performance, a key element is consistency. The right. 
ability to consistently deliver in a way that's expected. And I think there's a lot of companies that have these highs and lows and peaks and, and they're written off and then they come back with a big splash. And, and it's the ability to consistently deliver these, these ideas. Now, when we look at new, great, and reliable, a new idea doesn't necessarily have to be something that's never, ever been done before. It could be something that's new to your industry. For example, McDonald's modeled their drive-through layout after a Formula One pit stop. And BMW modeled their um, iDrive system after a video game control. So it's new to their industry and massively successful, but is it something that they came up with all by themselves? No, but that doesn't mean it's not innovative. Now, the second characteristic is great. And I'll, and I'll be honest, great's a little bit more subjective, but great is one of those ideas that when you hear it, it's like what David Ogilvy said. It's like, man, I wish I would have thought of that. You know, kind of, yeah. it yeah. you know gets you excited, raises the hair on your arm. And it's something that you really feel a visceral response to. Now, just having something new and great, even if you come up with it consistently, isn't enough to be innovation because the last characteristic is something that's reliable. And reliable is the ability to execute something that has a bottom line impact. It could be new revenue generation. It could be um, uh, cost savings. It could be reallocation of, of how money is invested and where to, again, better serve the customers and, and grow the business. And I think many times ideas are discounted as a part of innovation because the, these experts will say, well, coming up with the idea is the easy part. It's execution. That's like, that's all that matters. But I believe that the reason so many ideas are hard to execute is because they weren't great ideas to start with. They weren't, people weren't consistently delivering these new, great, and reliable ideas. So I think if we look at innovation just from the framework of an idea, now let's execute it, it's not the right approach. And that's what I want people to rethink is, you know, let's make sure that we start out with innovation by looking to solve a specific problem, whether that's something in your company, how it operates, whether it's a customer problem, whatever it is, but let's clearly define the objective against which we're creating these ideas so that we can innovate. Now let's look at how consistently can we come up with these new, great and reliable ideas that are executable and how good are we at executing them? Because I think all of this front end work part of innovation makes a huge difference when we look at the executability of an idea. So we, you, you talk about, you know, ideas and innovation. So let me re repeat what you said, that uh, innovation is consistent. It's great. It's reliable. And that's, and that's the, the idea as you start to kind of, build your foundation that those are three metrics that you're going to use or three factors that you're going to review when you're looking at an innovative idea. Is that accurate? Yeah. It's uh, the ability to consistently come up with ideas that have the three characteristics, new, great, okay. and reliable. New, great, yeah. and reliable. Okay. So how do we come up? How does a company come up with new ideas? Like how, how does that happen? You know, and I think that was the really fun part of writing this book was digging into whether it was researching massively successful innovators who had a long span of, you know, a, this consistency in their career of coming up with the ideas, whether it's, you know, people like Richard Branson or Steve Jobs or somebody like that, or whether it's 
a regular person, a business person, whoever it might be, who sometimes they work for a, um, a corporate enterprise size company. Sometimes they're a one person shop, but how do they actually come up with these ideas? And so as I started to interview and research them, it turns out that when I would say, you know, how did you come up with this idea? And they're like, you know, I don't know. It just came to me, you know, like a lot of us do. It just popped into my head, but I would, then I thought, okay, well, let's reverse engineer this. Let's ask them, what were you doing right before you came up with that idea? And then what were you doing right before that? So then in their mind, they could start to step backward each step and then it would jog their memory. And it turns out that everybody I interviewed all followed the same process, even if they didn't realize it. And I think that was the magic aha for me mm -hmm. as a researcher and, and digging into this process. And then as I realized this, then seeing the recognition on every person's face as I talked about this process. And they would say, that's exactly what I do. I didn't realize it, but that's exactly what I do. And, and that's the five-step process that I call the perpetual innovation process that lets you become a perpetual innovator, that consistency behind the ideas that lead to these big innovations and, and the extraordinary outcomes. Now I have, I want to talk to you about that five-step process, but before we get there, so when the, when the pandemic hit and it kind of flipped the world's economy uh, on its end, um, I feel like, you know, and businesses had to pivot. I feel like there were a, a lot of opportunities for innovation. And, you know, you saw some companies that took advantage of it and were very innovative in, in the way they approached dealing not only with the pandemic, but now, as, at least in the United States, in a post-pandemic world, but but why why didn't more companies seize the opportunity in in the crisis and and innovate their brands or their businesses? Yeah, and and that's a great question, Brian. And what I saw as I started to look at companies and their response a year ago, I saw there were three tiers of companies, and there was a big group that's like we're just going to wait and see. So they just held on to what they had. And they said, we're going to you know, see how long this lasts. We're not going to cut anything yet, but we're certainly not going to invest. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to preserve the status quo. And I think there were a lot of companies in that vein for a long time. And I think there still are a certain amount, but certainly not the same amount that there were a year ago. And those that left that main vein either went up the scale or down. And those that went down went into complete paralysis and denial. Mm. And they just hid from the re reality of what was going on. And those companies, you know, a lot of them are struggling to stay alive or have gone out of business because they could not deal with the massive amount of change that they were faced with. And they didn't have a culture that was elastic enough to change, much less change that quickly. And so everything just went right on by them. So you have that tier that's that's paralyzed. You have the tier that's just clinging on to the status quo, waiting to see what happens. And then you have this third tier that went up the scale. And those are the ones that are thriving. And we see these in, in many different industries. And, and some of them maybe um, companies that the rest of their industry is really struggling, but they understood how to 
change and look at the opportunity and take inspiration from successful examples that are outside of their industry, outside of their culture, outside of their time. Mm. And I know you're a, a big history buff. And I think there's so much that we can learn from what other leaders have done and how they've handled it and be able to take those ideas and transplant those in a way that relates to what we're doing and what we're facing that we can take advantage of that, that shows doing something drastic during a pandemic doesn't have to be as risky as some people feel it is because we can, we can lean on the experience of inspiration that we take from someplace else that's been very successful. Well, you'll, you, you, you have dozens, if not hundreds of examples right now happening in the U S and around the world Mm -hmm. with uh, inflation and everything that's happening right now as a result of it, you know, labor shortage, production constraints, supply chain interruption, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, when, when you think back on it and, and um, you know, like the rental car industry was told last year, oh, this pandemic is going to go on for a couple of years. And they looked at it and they said, well, we have all of these cars, you know, and we've got, you know, payments on them, lease payments on them. And I can't remember the number. I'll, I'll throw out a half a million cars were sold by the rental car companies because they said, look, we're, we're being told that this pandemic, the travel industry won't come back for two or three years. And now, less than a year later, there's a huge shortage. Yeah, you, can, you can't get a rental car to save your life. Absolutely. Right. So supply think, and demand. About, yeah. So think about the, the, the company that took time and said, all right, this is what we're being told, but what if, like nobody played the what if game, what if it does come back faster? Because the flip side of that was in the automotive industry, you know, they spent three months building ventilators and now they're back to building cars, but there is a huge global shortage of semiconductor chips. And now you have over a billion dollars worth of fully assembled cars sitting in lots because they don't have semiconductor chips. Right. And, and so like it's it's there's so much of that going on around the, the world. The effect, lum- yeah. yeah, the lumber industry. You know, nobody said, "Hey, what if things come back faster than anticipated?" Wouldn't it be smart for us to start, you know, making sure we our lumber supplies are filled? Uh, uh, um, um, and and just uh, there are so many different examples of that that I feel like that the companies were like sheep. A lot of companies were sheep. They just listened to what the, you know, the head of the, you know, whatever the economy said and said, you know, your, your business isn't going to come back for two years, sell all your inventory. Uh, You know, absolutely. And I think there's, there's that um, situation where when you're hit with something that completely knocks you out of left field, like who, who could have ever imagined a global pandemic like this is that you let go of your power by giving someone else control by making, pers- uh, making decisions based on what they decide the future is going to be. And even if they were right, I think one of the great things about innovation and not limiting it to just, you know, a few people, even if you have an innovation department, is that you really spark the idea generation and the problem solving abilities and the critical thinking of all of your employees. Because I think especially 
at the executive level, you get distanced and isolated from what customers really mm. need and want a lot of the times. And I think there's no better place to get the ideas and understand how to serve your customers when they need it most than from frontline, a peop, frontline people. But a lot of executives and a lot of frontline people, to be honest, also don't consider that position to be one that's innovative. And I think that's right. why we, we really do need to rethink how we define it and understand the impact it can really have. And one of the um, stories that I tell in the book is about a guy who um, he worked at Omaha Steaks and he, oh, yeah, yeah. his job was taping the boxes shut. Yeah. And he looked at it and he said, I, I think we can tape the boxes shut and make them just as secure and use less tape. They did it. And, and this was 20, 25 years ago. He'd say $50,000, just him with that yeah. one idea. Yeah. $50,000. And now you think, well, you know, if you're an enterprise company and billions of dollars, no, that's not a lot of money. But if you adjust for inflation, now you look at the cumulative effect if every employee thought like that. Right. And not just thought about saving money, but found opportunities to grow revenue, better serve, you know, adjust and tweak whatever's done consistently rather than having to do these massive overhaul and adjustments. When you have something like a pandemic, it's a whole different business environment for your company. Yeah. You're talking about diversity of thought. Right. Looking at Absolutely. your business from 360 degree angle, where if you look at your executive leadership and it's all people who are the same gender, the same race, the same ethnicity, same background, you're going to get a view of a very limited view of what your world and what your customer's world looks like. And that's why I love your book, because your book embraces the idea of diversity of thought that innovation can come from anywhere in the company, that the people who are part of your target audience are also your employees. And they can, they can see things and hear things and look at things from a different perspective than you. And that's what they bring and, and the idea of embracing that. I love that. Yeah, thank you. And, and I think that's really important, especially there's, there's companies that obviously get complacent and they write off who uh, write off companies that are going to end up surpassing them because they don't fit their criteria, you know, their mindset of what an innovative, disruptive company actually is. And, and that's yeah. to the underdog's favor. Yeah. All right. So let, let's talk about that five-step process that you mentioned, because I wrote it down because I love stuff like this. Uh, the first one is observe. T take yeah. me through that step. Yeah. And I'll take you through by giving you an example, because I think that really helps. And I think one of the things that's, that has happened to us, especially as we've um, really dug into the world of technology and our ever-present smartphones, is mm -hmm. that we've become numb to the world around us. And I know now that we can go back to, to um, restaurants what happens is, is you go to a restaurant and you sit down and you look around and there will be a table with one family there and everybody's on their cell phones, Ugh. you know, doing the playing games or, you know, maybe they're just texting each other. I don't know. Yeah. And there's no, there's no openness and awareness of the world around us. And whenever we do that, it, there's actually neuroscience that happens to our brain and it doesn't just narrow our line of vision, you know, because if you're only looking at your cell phone, you're only going to see so many things. It also begins to narrow your range of thought, your range of problem solving, your range of um, finding opportunities, all of these different things. 
So the first step is observation, because if we're going to have a spark of inspiration for a great idea, especially a consistently, you know, uh, great ideas on a consistent basis that are new, great and reliable, we have to be able to be aware of the world around us and, and take in inspiration. So that's why observation is the first step. And, and what I found in my research is the most innovative people are also highly, highly observant. Mm. And um, one of our friends, Tim Washer, he used to work for Cisco. And Tim's background is in comedy. He was a stand-up comedian. He still does comedy. Yeah. And he was a writer for Amy Poehler mm. and Weekend Update, a writer for um, Conan O'Brien and Bill Nye, the science guy. So he's worked with the names in comedy. And he was able to take his ability to observe how you build rapport very quickly as a comedian and break that down and start to relate that into the work that he did in Cisco that, mm -hmm. that delivered some incredible projects. And we can go through the process in looking at how he did that with comedy, because from from observation, the next step is to distill. So you have all of these observations, but unless you have context for them, it doesn't matter. So the second step is to distill all of these concepts, all of these things that you've observed. You know, if you think about the process of connecting the dots and coming up with an idea, right. your observations are these dots. And now as you distill them and find patterns, that's how you start to connect the dots. Right. And, and, and you mentioned that. I, I would call it distillation. Yes, <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a liquor term. Yes, but the, exactly. the, yeah. So, so observation is kind of like that top of the funnel. And, and to distill it then is to bring it down into that funnel. You know, hopefully, you know, at the bottom, you're going to get an end result of some kind of innovative idea. But so then, so, all right. So you observe first and then step two is to distill what you've observed. Exactly. And it's actually something our brain does naturally. Our brain needs to find patterns for context. Mm -hmm. And so this process taps into the, the naturalness of your brain um, as a child. And I think that aspect of finding patterns and connecting dots is taught out of us as we grow into adulthood. Because, you know, we're, we're taught to follow pro processes and not think so much, just follow the process, follow the rules, follow what your boss says, you know, do all these things. But it's taught out of us to be more observant and, and to start to see those patterns. But that's what you have to do just as the foundation of becoming more innovative. And that's why it's the first two steps of the process. And then the third step is to relate. So exactly. Exactly. So, so using that, that example of Tim Washer, what he did is he observed all these details mm -hmm. of what comedians would do and how they could so, um, how they could connect with an audience so quickly. And as he distilled these observations, he said he was able, the comedians are able to get people to laugh mm -hmm. and that puts their emotional walls down and they're more open to whatever the message is after that. And they trust the person more and a lot of different aspects. And so he went to take those patterns and that he had distilled and relate that into his work when he worked at Cisco. And he said, what if we could start out a, you know, a campaign for a new product and look at how we can get people to laugh and put down their emotional walls and, and get them to trust us because, you know, it's, it's hard to release a product 
and have a talking head video of an of an engineer and get somebody to laugh. Right, you know, but right. what what if we could really rethink this and and do it differently? And that was, I think, a big part of of his magic. You know, that works a lot for comedians, but it's we can learn from Tim's process about how he did those first three steps to relate the the elements of comedy into the work that he did in a very corporate, very enterprise environment. Right. And so that's part of relating, like you said, taking things that are part of your everyday world, sports, entertainment, your kids school and looking at something and saying, hmm, I wonder if we used that process, that method or approach to problem solving in a third grade classroom and applied it to what we're doing in our office setting. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so then that, that leads to the fourth step, which is to generate, generate. an idea. Yeah. But now you're coming to that idea from a completely different mindset. You're looking at it, you know, again, how, how can we generate ideas that look at bringing that third grade process in, into a corporate board meeting or, or something like that? Now, I'm not saying that means let's have nap time in board meetings or, you know, <laughs> let's have cookie and Kool-Aid, but, you know, it's, right, right. Is it, you know, what are those elements that work? And what traditionally happens with people when they're looking for a new idea, something that's innovative and creative is that they just start with, let's generate an idea, let's brainstorm. Right. And we all know what happens in these. It's it's a waste of time. The person with the highest title has the idea that's moved forward, whether it's, you know, any chance of working or not, or people take an idea, something else that's already been done, and they kind of dress it up in different pig's clothing and put some lipstick on it and send it out the door. And yeah, and it never works. I mean, it's it's never anything particularly impressive, interesting. Um you know, nothing that gets people talking because there's nothing inspired about it. And it's things that people are used to hearing. But with Tim and the, and the product launch that he ended up doing, it was, it was right before Valentine's day. And so taking those comedy basics and looking at how he distilled them into patterns and then relating those patterns into the work that he did, the idea that he generated was to do a comedic product launch that use the idea of Valentine's day and how do you say, I love you to your sweetheart. And, and there was, you know, giving him a box of chocolates and carving your initials into a tree and things like that. <laughs> but this year it would also include the Cisco ASR 9,000 router, you know, so it was so ridiculous. and so over the top that people couldn't help, but laugh. Yeah. So the yeah. Sales team loved it because here they would go into the meetings with clients, even if they were existing clients and they would show them that, video and people would laugh and the whole energy and dynamics of the inter interaction changed immediately. And, you know, the, the people who are very innovative, they end up delivering these ideas that have these extraordinary outcomes that are things they could never shoot for. Mm. And because they, they wouldn't know to ask for them. And, and for Tim, it was being this idea was able to get the attention of analysts and reporters that normally wouldn't cover them who are now saying, you know, you need to go look at Cisco. Yeah. Hey, you know what, <clears throat> before we get to the fifth one pitch. So the first four observe, distill, relate, generate, you, you made me think of something. How important is accountability in innovation? Because I asked that because of what you just said, you said, you know, most companies will go right to step three and, you know, find relatable ideas and let's generate it. And the person with the, you know, highest title gets the idea. And there doesn't seem to be any sort of accountability then to 
the process or to welcoming new ideas or even to to recognizing the first two steps. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think when you when you look at the word accountability, I like to think of it as two words as account able. And when you think about ideas, are you able to take account for the ideas that you come up with. And I think that's a key characteristic of innovative people too, is that they're willing to own their own ideas and they're willing to fight for them, you know, ask for help to massage them, make them better, understand what to do and, and to really push for those ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think people who are either um, more concerned about their reputation, about how they look, rather than truly looking at how can we do things better. You know, they're, they're so worried about risking some uh, status level yeah. that, they're not, that they're not really willing to, to get behind their own ideas. I mean, if, if they trial it a little bit and they get some interest, great, they'll go. But if they trial it and, you know, get some people who disagree, then they're going to drop it on the side of the road and, and move on to something Next, but I think what they're really missing is the opportunity to understand what it takes to come up with a new, great, reliable idea that has the potential to really deliver these massive returns. And and that was the consistent element that I saw from people who followed this process is that they deliver these extraordinary outcomes. Extraordinary has is subjective, you know, for you know, one company, it can make a, a, you know, $200 million difference for another company. It's a $5,000 difference, right. but it was, it was an approach that mattered and had a dramatic impact on the company and, and on the person who um, came up with that idea. And, and so that's, that's part of the reason why I love the fact that Rethink Innovation came out when it did because the world got turned up on, you know, uh, on its end and because, it was almost like you wipe the slate clean. Okay, how do we do business? How do we stay connected to our customers? How do we deliver on products and services? What do people need right now? And, and it was like uncharted waters. And it really meant it almost forced every company, whether it was one looking for $5,000 in, in new business or one that was just $20 million in new business or cost savings, is that it, it, rethinking innovation has come to everybody and it's, and it's still here. Like we are in the thick of it. So your timing, and I'm sure you didn't decide to write this book two weeks ago, <laughs> that your timing right. is actually incredible. But So kudos to you on that. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I know you and I have talked about the timing and also ideas and innovation because behind all of this are people. Mm. And you and I have seen some horrible headlines lately about CEOs saying, if if you don't return to work, then you're not going to be productive or there is no culture unless everybody's in a physical office. And and I think that that's just another reflection of what we need to rethink about. You know who said that, by the way, the CEO of WeWork. Exactly. Exactly. Not not like somebody doesn't have an ulterior motive. Right. Right. It it goes back to that expression. You know, never ask a tire salesman if you need new tires. Exactly. Never ask the CEO of WeWork what he thinks about a a hybrid model or a work from home model uh, for for business. (laughs) You know, but but I do remember. I mean, I remember when I started to work from home after my corporate job. It was it was actually twenty years ago this month that I. 
quit my last corporate job and, and started my own business. And it was amazing how much more I got done in a week because you know, there is a lot of inefficiency and I don't want to completely discount that inefficiency because a lot of times that's necessary to have the inspiration, the motivation, and the the conversations that really spark great ideas, but it's not one way or the other. There's a lot of different ways and let's start to rethink what that looks like. Yeah. So let's, I want to, I want to then address the last step in the process, Uh, observe, distill, relate, generate. And the fifth one is pitch. Take us through pitch. Pitch. And you know what? It doesn't matter how great, how magnificent, how impactful your idea is. A, a bad pitch kills the best of ideas. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting. I was talking to a CMO when I was doing my research and I was asking him, like, give me some examples of, of, of a time when somebody came to you and they pitched you an idea, but the pitch was so horrible that it overshadowed the benefit and the positive things of, of what they were trying to say. Right. And he, I could just feel the pain. And he, I mean, there was, you know, yeah. time after time after time again. And he said, what, what happens is that people were so bad at pitching that it was hard to understand. And he's a very nurturing, supportive person. Mm. He said, it, he said, it's, it's hard to even know where to start. And it, it almost got to the point, he said, you know, like he walked me through the conversation in his head about this was such a bad pitch. And the fact that if you think that was a great pitch to sell this idea, then I don't know if I can trust you on this. And, you know, down this rabbit hole of, I think I might have to fire you because of this. Of course <laughs> he didn't. Of course he didn't. Yeah. But I think that's, that's the thing is that we don't know how to tell the story of an idea. And it's also another reason that this process works so great because what we didn't talk about is before any of this even starts is that people need to set an objective. What's the problem? What's the issue? What's the opportunity that they're looking for ideas to address? Mm -hmm. And so if you come to your boss or your client and you say, I have an idea and I think we need to uh, get people to dump ice cold buckets of water over their head and ask them to give us money at the end of it. I think it's great. What do you think? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I'm sure if you went back to the inspiration for the ALS ice bucket challenge, it made perfect sense as the person who pitched the idea brought it through the journey and and how they ended up there and the problem that they were looking to solve. And that's, that's what this process does is when you tell people where the inspiration came from, you start to describe all of those dots, and then you distill it into the pattern. You explain why that pattern relates to the work that you do and how that inspired the idea that you generated. That's your pitch right there. And you tell, you paint enough of a picture of how this idea now solves the problem that you've identified, but not so much that all the, that all the details are concrete and they say yes or no. And that's the, the beauty is that it helps other people fill in the holes with you So now they feel that they have part ownership in that idea and back to accountability. You know, if I have ownership, then I feel accountable to help make it successful. And I think the other part of pitching is that those who receive the pitches, I call them the catchers, are terrible at giving feedback. You know, it's things like, oh, it wasn't quite there. Go back and polish it up a little more and, you know, 
talk to me Monday kind of thing. And so the person leaves the meeting and they're, they don't know what the person didn't like. They don't know what they should work on. They don't know where they missed the mark. And so they either go back and try and work on it some more and repitch it. And the boss or client's like, this, this is just bad. I don't want to waste time on this. And so the person loses heart or the person never comes back with a refined idea because they don't know what to do. They don't know next steps. So that's part of what I talk about is, is that if you as a leader or a client aren't consistently having people come to you with these new, great and reliable ideas, you have part of the ownership and why that's not happening because you're not giving feedback that's specific and clear so that people know how to evolve and advance that idea. Mm-hmm. And you're not, you're not giving that kind of feedback. And, and without that, the ideas can never evolve. And I mean, look at the chances of, of one idea right out of the gate being the right, perfect idea, you know, right. probably less than 1%. And, and that's, yeah. that's what we have to look at. I mean, where you start, you know, in the observation process, part of the process and where you come to at the pitch, I mean, it's probably dramatically different than, you know, what you probably first wrote down. You're like, okay, if I had to, if I had to write down the five steps in this process, one, two, three, four, five, I know that many times because there are so many edits and changes and, you know, trying to, you know, it's like you're kind of chipping away the clay of a beautiful sculpture, right? And you go, okay, absolutely, that, that, yeah. That, come back, be more inspired. Let's until we get to that, you know, that pitch part where everybody buys and everybody sees the same thing that we see is mm-hmm. what I'm getting from what you're yeah. saying. And that's why you need a lot of ideas because you're going to go through a lot. You're going to, yeah. some won't be the right time. You don't have the budget. It's not the right circumstance, you know, a, a jillion reasons, but you always have this portfolio of things. And maybe those original ideas will never see the light of day, but they can combine, they can morph a whole lot of things can come through that. And one of the things that I found is that you don't really get to good ideas, you know, great ideas until you've gone through 200 okay and maybe sort of good ideas. Yeah. Because what, what do they say? The brain, gold is at the bottom of the barrel? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Your brain needs to get out all of the, the common stuff, the, the recently relevant, the familiar, the habitual way of thinking until you get to really new and different thinking. Mm. And that that's when you start to get to the gold. And I think even as the person who brings the idea to the table and pitches it, it makes you feel really great and not just competent that you're good at coming up with ideas now, but confident in that passion absolutely comes through when people start pitching ideas. So, all right, we are in the home stretch, which is amazing because I have so many more questions. I might have to have you back on. So for those of you watching on video, uh, Rethink Innovation, uh, the, how the world's most prolific innovators come up with great ideas that deliver extraordinary outcomes. This is Carla Johnson's new book. It comes out June 29th. Um, I love it. I want to I talk to you one one. Maybe a quick question. I had a couple, but I'm going to I'm going to lean on this. Um, Chapter nine, you talk about creating a culture of original thinkers. So here's my question. How important is culture when you're trying to innovate? And and I want to tag this onto it. 
And are the are silos, if they still exist in companies, I don't know. I've been out of corporate America so long. <laughs> you but, and me both, right? <laughs> are silos the enemy of innovation? So part two-part question, how important is culture, innovation, and are silos and, and, and kind of the territorial leaders, are they the enemy of innovation? Yeah. And, and first of all, culture is everything because a big part of innovation is things not turning out the way you thought they would, you know, which mm. to some people is, is the big F-bomb they don't want to talk about, failure. But I think the culture of the company determines whether or not something not working out is a failure or a learning experience and how mm. can we do it differently. And that right there is all about culture. And there's so many companies who talk about, yes, innovation, it's, it's so important, it's a core value and it's all these things, but you better not ever make a mistake. And that's culture and you can't have innovation in that kind of culture. And then you look at, at other organizations that are very open and, and saying, if, if you're not failing, and we're not talking about a $20 million product launch totally flopping, you know, we're looking at incremental failure so that you can learn. So when you get to that $20 million investment, it doesn't fail, but it is something completely different, new, extraordinary, and, and has those kind of outcomes that you're looking for. And the other one, what was the second question? Well, it was the, our silos, the enemy of innovation. But before you get to that, 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 what you're talking about kind of goes back to the idea of accountability being yeah. an integral part of innovation that people understand there are going to be boundaries. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to limit your thinking, your scope of thinking and observation and distillation. If that's the word that you use or yes. relating to it. But the idea is we all need to bring this closer towards the net result, uh, the pitch of the idea. Yeah, so there has I mean to be some accountability. There does. And I think that's the difference between these truly prolific innovation, innovative organizations and traditional companies mm -hmm. is that traditional companies are saying the people who know how to innovate are this group over here that have different workspace, different desks. They can dress differently. You know, there's certain characteristics that identify them. But truly innovative organizations don't rely on just a little handful of people. They understand that it's something that, that everybody needs to do. And if you're going to be like that, then there's, there's going to be um, different kind of conversations that happen to help people understand how to make those ideas successful. And I think that lends itself a little bit to your second question about, about yes. silos. Mm -hmm. And the more that you can cross-pollinate conversations within a company, the more innovative you're going to be, because the more you can learn about a company as a total and, and how it works, the better you will be. And I talk about um, Park Mobile in the book. They're the parking app company based in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And twice a year, they shut the entire company down, not just the product and tech side, the entire company down for a week each time. And they host innovation weeks. And it's Everybody is involved. And now that doesn't mean everybody is the people coming up with ideas. Sometimes, you know, a group has an idea and then somebody else who's maybe from finance or um, an administrative assistant or somebody like that, they join that team. And because of their outlook or a skill that they have that other people 
don't on the team, they're able to contribute and be a part of innovation in a way that they wouldn't normally if the company didn't have a culture that was so open and welcoming to people participating in innovation and, and really understanding what it is. Because I don't care how great you are as an innovation department, your ideas and everything you do still has to make it its way through the rest of the organization. And all of that friction, because people don't understand the importance of innovation, can slow everything down that you're trying to get out the door as fast as possible. Yeah, this is great. Carla, thank you so much for being part of our podcast today. Uh, I love your book. I highly recommend it to everybody in, in, in no matter what size the company that you're in, uh, because as you, we realized and as we discussed, you know, innovation is taking place in companies of all sizes, from the one person, you know, home-based business all the way up to Fortune 500 companies. And Absolutely. And that's what's so fun to talk to you about is because there's there's examples in the book of, of one person companies. Yes. And how they massively innovated and, and really took over their, their industry just because they rethought innovation. Those little Davids fighting the Goliaths. That's right. Right. Congratulations on your book, Rethink oh, Innovation. It comes out June 29th. There'll be links in our resource page on where you can find it. And uh, I we got to have you back on again. And for everybody listening- it. I did an earlier podcast, probably a year or two ago with you. Yeah. Uh, that was fantastic. I think we did it on branding. maybe. I think we did too. Yeah, yeah exactly. that was great. So thank you, Carla. Congratulations on your book. I love it. And um, I will definitely let everybody know that uh, it's coming out and that they should buy it. Great. Thanks so much, Brian. It was just a delight to be here with you today. As always. All right. And to all our listeners, thank you very much for listening to the Small Business Edge podcast. Um, we appreciate your comments, your feedback. Really fantastic stuff. Keep it coming and uh, let us know what topics you want us to cover. And we will. And we will see you next week with another edition of the Small Business Edge podcast. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Small Business Edge podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Please visit our website, smallbusinessedge.com, for a listing of future podcasts.